0: my name is Andres Nair Magnusson. I'm a, an Icelandic writer sometimes filmmaker often activist father of four children basically a citizen of Iceland I'm just a normal boy from the suburbs I have a, come from a family of doctors and nurses lived in the states until I was nine that actually influenced me quite a lot because from a very young age, I felt like I had kind of a double perspective on Iceland, both the outsider's eye, but also being from the inside. I was good at math, so I was maybe on my way into some kind of engineering or medicine, but I got tangled up in poetry. And when I was 22, I self-published my first book and it sold actually a lot so I could buy myself an apartment very young actually from Poetry profit, which is a strange story for it's not basically the, the struggling artist story my next book after that was a children's book called The Story of the Blue Planet so so my career took off quite early and then I did sci-fi next in, in kind of in the wake of, or do you call it the wake, or, or the dawn of, of the internet era. Uh, and uh, the promises of connecting everybody, and, and it hadn't happened yet, but I was kind of exploring uh, that through my, my uh, sci-fi novel, Love Star. I was thinking what 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 do you write about? What should be the subject of poetry?" And uh, I was young and healthy, and uh, I didn't I was just like a skiing kid. so I wasn't really this artist type, and I was thinking of the history of literature in Iceland and art, how art has always been claiming spaces. Golden plover didn't have any meaning in the 17th century. But after the romantic poets had been writing poems about the golden plover for a hundred years, the golden plover became a symbol of spring, hope, God, beauty, innocence, you know. So the golden plover actually isn't on our menu. You know, we don't eat golden plovers because you don't eat love, spring and God. And uh, lava was not anything special. It was actually a nuisance. Carval started painting lava. The you know, lava is not practical for a farmer, it does not supply anything for you. And it, it, it's difficult to navigate, it breaks your horses' bones, and, and it's just a nuisance. So poets before they would say the lava fields are wounds that we are meant to heal. That is to level out the lava fields and, and grow hay for for animals and, and become prosperous. But then this painter Carval came and he just made these huge paintings, which was basically just lava. And and we started to see lava differently. So I was walking around my local uh, strip mall, which is the ugliest place in Iceland. And there are no seasons there. There's no beauty there. There's no history, no architecture. It's basically a horrible shopping mall. And I was thinking, what if I tried to claim this area with poetry? So I went into Bonus, which is the supermarket chain in this strip mall, and I saw it was divided exactly like the Divine Comedy by Dante. So you start in Paradiso, the fruit division, you go to Inferno, the meat products, then you end in the purgatory, the the cleaning products. And everything in this supermarket uh, is Bonus. So It's it's, uh, Bonus bread, Bonus cola, Bonus ham, Bonus toilet paper. So I was thinking, how would the most hideous book of poetry looked like and it would probably have this pink pig logo so I made this book of poetry and took it to the owner of Bonus and he really liked the cover so he published it and it sold it by the counter on an eternal special offer it was kind of a stunt it was like how can I be the most extreme sellout the poet was like the last stand of, of holiness like the the last Non-consumer, the non-participant in in the consumer society. And I was like, what if I take my poetry and I just go f- full force, and I make a product and I sell it in the supermarket on a discount, and you get one copy free if you buy thirty pounds of pork. It was both sarcastic, but also asking some questions. So Iceland. It's a volcanic island, it's not a small place. And we are only 300,000 that inhabit the island. And then we're only scattered around the coast, not even evenly scattered around the coast, just in a, in a few towns and cities. Like 99% of Iceland is out of reach. And in those areas, you don't, have, you don't have paved roads, you don't have uh, power lines or uh, infrastructure, only in a few places. These are roaring rivers that are untamed, roaring glacial rivers, waterfalls, uh, geothermal areas, vast expanses of sand and lava, a very harsh, brutal landscape with one or two oasis areas of vegetation and, uh, and wildlife. The most beautiful that you could actually imagine When you actually take a walk, especially after you've slept in it for one or two days and you're really setting in, then you start kind of changing and connecting in a different way. And you just feel this immense feeling of awe and and, and greatness and holiness. It's hostile. It's not really your friend. So, but you're still connected to it. So you feel this deep respect. It's almost seductive, seducing you. Just, why don't you just, you know, come with me, you know, just vanish into this chaos? You have areas that are maybe only made of three elements just maybe black sand, water, and neon green moss. So it's like, it's like almost like a, the most primitive planet somewhere in space. It has one species one type of rock and one other element. And then you can understand that you don't need so much to create beauty. So you have these areas and then suddenly they propose it as a area for a dam. And that actually stirs and it's for a smelter owned by Alcoa and and uh, and you're gonna drown the area, an area that is bigger than the capital and And you're gonna put in bulldozers and explosives, and you're just basically gonna blast it all to pieces and drown it and and that stirs and and it's it's so painful to watch that two thousand to two thousand seven or or you could say ninety seven to two thousand seven was the decade of greed China was rising and suddenly came this infinite demand for raw material from the global market. And suddenly we understood that Iceland was not beautiful because we wanted to preserve it, and we had efforts to preserve it. Iceland was beautiful by coincidence because we never got the resources to destroy it. The plan was always to destroy it. The government plans since the 50s were a total destruction of the highlands of Iceland. I think every paradigm shift comes from many sources, it would come from a social theory, but then it's translated into songs, poetry, paintings, culture and stories, both to explain the theory and to spread uh, the idea. I think, Art has a huge role in that, and storytelling. And that's what scientists have told me, is that we're not breaking through. And so in the history of, of the women's rights movements, the independence movements, uh, social, any change, or religious, in any direction, it comes through some kind of science or ideology, but then then through art, poetry, songs, music, film. I'm Not saying that every writer should has has to write a climate book or something, but i for myself I felt like uh being a citizen here and now I had the uh I had the moral duty to do that. things were going crazy in Iceland where Almost all the most beautiful places in Iceland were going to be plundered for the aluminum industry. And then I made uh, the book Dreamland, a self-help manual for a frightened nation. And that's a a non-fiction book about an issue that was a totally polarizing issue. It was so tough that it, it, it destroyed friendships like when your uncle that was always your favorite uncle and you would go fishing with him and and he would help you renovate your house you know so like your favorite uncle just suddenly became an asshole and you couldn't talk to him anymore and he just said fuck you uncle you know like i'm not talking to you because you want to destroy everything that i cherish the most and he would say fuck you andre you're a Total asshole, and you want to destroy the economy, and you know. So we were in that in that kind of psychological, mental civil war state. The situation was aluminum or death. That is, we need jobs, we need economic growth, uh, we need prosperity, we need a welfare system, we need roads, we need infrastructure, and that's why we need an aluminum company and a dam, because that will create all this. And then I would say, I don't think it's a good idea. And then they would say, okay, so what do we do instead? The question is illegal. Because in a creative society, no single individual has insight into what is created, what services emerge to problems, what kind of uh, ideas come out. Yes, I know exactly that we can get 2,000 megawatts of energy if we harness all these rivers and those megawatts will be exactly enough to produce uh, 1.5 million tons of aluminum and that will need exactly 2,556 jobs (laughs) and exactly these container ships. Yes, I know that. It's firm. And if we say yes to that, then we will get those jobs. But I had to argue that when we always say yes to something like that, we're maybe saying no to something else. And we're destroying something that can't be measured, but is maybe bigger than an aluminum co- smelter in its uh, emptiness. And it astonished me when I started diving into that field, how a layman could actually see faults in the headlines. I would go have a meeting with a group of MBA students, people from the business, And I would say, I would just ask a very stupid question. Look at this headline, one billion of export revenue. Uh, You're all business people. I'm just a stupid poet. Let's just calculate, where is this billion? How can it be in an enlightened society that the headline says a billion dollars, the headline says 5% economic growth, which is just because they were finishing the dam the last year and pouring lots of loan money into the economy. How can it be that I, as a poet, can see this? And is this the reason why my uncle hates me? Because he thinks a billion dollars are at stake and his sole livelihood. But what is actually at stake is uh, is 400 jobs. And 400 jobs is just marginal in the whole picture of the Icelandic economy. And these jobs are actually talented people that would have been working in the fishing industry, would have been working in in other fields, creating value in those fields. So to address this, why we always say yes to the most obvious economic activity, thinking we will become richer, while in the end we might actually sacrifice nature. We were told we have to sacrifice nature for the economy, but maybe we might be sacrificing nature and the economy. And isn't that a very tragic situation? And also creating a a civil war of uh, uncles hitting their nephews, et cetera. So I had to rewrite the history of Iceland. I was wondering, I don't know anything about the history of Egypt, Uh, And I don't know anything about the pyramids. I've heard theories about aliens and, and gods and all sorts of... I'm quite sure we can find a super stupid explanation for the pyramids. I think we can just find the most stupid explanation for this possible. And that the pyramids are the most stupid thing that humanity had built until we started the industrial revolution. I'm quite sure they were built in one crazy boom. Because if you build a pyramid for 40 years and you put all the resources of your state and your wars into building the pyramid, you don't stop doing that. You're you're very good at building a pyramid after 40 years. And the whole economy, the supply chain from harvesting to rope-making to gathering the slaves to the highest engineer people's status, culture. So after 40 years of building a pyramid, y- you don't stop doing that. You build another pyramid. It's just, you know, if, if suddenly came a progressive pharaoh and said, no, we're not building a pyramid. We're, you're free. You can just do what you want. Everybody would just go crazy. And then somebody like asks a stupid question. Couldn't we just have put the dead pharaoh into a simple hole in the ground because this pyramid doesn't even cast a shade. It's useless. We can't use it for anything. You know, even a wall casts a shade. It can be used for something, but a pyramid is, it's, it's like the most useless structure that a human can build, especially in that place. And then they get this rumor from Greece that actually not everybody is a slave, but this utopian world where only 50% are slaves. And, and they just uh, sit in these amphitheatres and, and listen to s- tragedies and eat bread and dip it in olive oil. And they just have this al- alternative utopian lifestyle of arguing philosophy in squares, etc. So it's not until after the third pyramid that you get sarcastic and, and ask this question. And, and uh, I'm not sure actually, because I know nothing about Egypt, but when I googled it, this thing called Google. And it is actually true. The pyramids, they were built on a period of 120 crazy years. And of course, it's a super simplified explanation. But we are at this place now after 120 years, you know, maybe from 1900 to 2020. We're like, is my car cool? You know, I used to identify as a car. (laughs) Like uh, me and my car were like, single unit it was my like my crab shell or my like my hermit crab shell I'm not sure it is a good idea are they cool anymore is this brand cool is this house cool you know is my fashion cool is my is my daily work does it have meaning because we're looking at this intolerable situation this is maybe worse than in egypt that I think most generations thought they have been improving the lives for their ancestors. But we're in this intolerable situation where we're actually undermining, scientifically proven, uh, on a day-to-day basis. We're undermining the future. So actually the best thing we could do for the future is actually to do nothing. If I would just go to a, a monastery, a Catholic or a Buddhist monastery and own nothing, and just eat a bowl of rice for 30 years that would be the best thing i could do for the planet the next big, best thing would to develop some green <laughs> technology but uh, at the moment that also requires lots of resources and i would still be living this lifestyle that is going against the planet and and it's funny that it's actually not been suggested in the public talk uh, like in, in terms of climate solutions because we've had monks and, and nuns or, or, or philosophers in rags for for thousands of years it's been a lifestyle choice always but it's never been presented as a lifestyle choice uh, okay guys, sorry we blew it in the next 30 years we just have to meditate or you don't have to meditate and it doesn't have to be a god maybe you just have to read poetry, or smell flowers, or grow vegetables, or become a mechanic monk, where you just uh, yeah, you have a robe, but you're basically just taking old washing machines and, and fixing them for nothing, because for some strange reason, it's too expensive to fix things. We're in this difficult state. Because the science is just so overwhelming and the time is so narrow. I'm trying to understand also how we don't understand what is happening. It's obvious that we understood uh, the science behind the coronavirus laws, regulations, habits, everything changed just overnight. And of course, because it was so urgent, people became sick overnight, and the tragedy of the events that happened when it went, swept through these. Uh, countries but you talk to somebody and you ask how did your life change according to that and they can talk endlessly about how their life changed how they didn't travel how they didn't get go to weddings how they didn't go to school just just you know everybody knows this just infinite change of lifestyle then you ask somebody but you do agree that the climate data is showing us much more serious things we're talking about the existence of the planet, uh, biodiversity, <laughs> the oceans. We're just, we're basically talking about everything. And people say yes, of course. And then I say, okay, and how did your life change between IPCC reports? What do you do now that you didn't do twenty years ago? How has your, has your life, your business, your daily routine changed according to this science? People scratch their heads and they're like. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh and then I think I'm um, like uh, Yeah, my my niece, she's vegan now. Yes, I say, but was she forced to be you know, is that according to law or is you know, was there a mandate, like a mask mandate to be vegan? No, 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 she just did it. It actually feels much better. Okay, okay. But but you know, what has nothing been forced upon you? There's there's no like legal obligation that you have, or or any like, any common sacrifice that everybody has had to make. And then, well, well, I bought a Tesla, and I'm like, yes, Uh, do you think a a Tesla is a sacrifice? (laughs) And do you really think that we will address the biggest existential threat to humanity and the foundations of everything by upgrading to the coolest car that you've had? So it's so obvious that all the information is out there, but we don't understand it. And I think it has lots to do with time. My generation is raised with the year 2000 as the future. We're not adapted to thinking into the 21st century. Sometimes when I have lectures, I ask, doesn't everybody agree that, and often people my age, isn't everybody agreeing here that 1970 was 30 years ago. And everybody says, yes, of course. So I think in a very strange way, people born in the 70s or 60s, that everybody that was there thinks 2050 is 50 years from now. I still think that 2100 is 100 years from now, but not 80 years from now. So the timeline is something that we don't understand. The language is something we don't understand. And that's why, when I write my book, I had to use the metaphor of the black hole. You can't look straight into the black hole, so I can't say this. And I can't put myself on the wise man's chair into my ivory tower and say, you stupid citizen. I have to explain to people and and then I have to go into the history of paradigm shifts to see that, that when a paradigm shift comes in, it can take a hundred years for that language, the language to change. So I'm using examples from Nordic mythology, both in terms of language and myth, but also... Uh, so in Nordic mythology, the rule of poetry was, was not to say exactly what... You you did not name the things with the real names. You would not say Earth. You would say Odin's Bride. You would not say Sky. You would talk about the dwarf's helmet. So you would make a whole poem that would be almost like a riddle. But all the riddles, all the words would make sense in terms of Nordic mythology. But then somebody says, becomes Christian, which is a new paradigm, a new god. And he could not explain the new god the creator of heaven and earth, without saying the creator of the dwarf's helmet and Odin's bride. So for the first centuries or decades, you could not explain the new religion, the new paradigm, without being saturated and and just basically without the baggage of all the old religion. And I think we are there. We talk about green economy Earth services, yeah, we're trying to, yeah, I don't understand the forest. Uh, I don't understand the river. I don't understand the sky. Then an economist helps us and says, oh, dear, dear boy, it is providing services. So the sky is like a free supermarket that is giving you free water. And the, the forest is actually a cleaning system. That is, instead of this factory, it's, it's servicing you. With it. So it's it's like we're, we're our, our language is so saturated. So I'm very aware when I write my book that we're in this language void, and I don't really know what language to use. Shall I use marketing language? Shall I use uh, democratic language? If our choices lead to the apocalypse, <laughs> both as consumers and as democratic uh, citizens. Will will democracy be frowned upon after 100 years because it just totally failed us because we will have proven that we were too stupid to choose because all the science was out there, all the technology, all the machines, everything, but we could not align our resources with the science, with the know-how, with our daily jobs to fix it. Are our systems rational, our educational systems, our... Uh, democratic systems, our our institutions, are they rational? Uh, But why is the outcome not rational? Would it have been more rational to be superstitious, to believe that there's a god in the forest and there's a spirit in the waterfall? There's an enchanted place where we should not go because people say if you go there, something terrible will happen but then we became rational and we like picked in and were like, there's nothing there. We'll just plunder that. And guess what? Something terrible is happening. I'm not preaching any new age or holiness, but I, I'll, I just ask this question. Why can we not feel holiness when we come to a place that is to be plundered? Why is there no buffer, almost like an immune system? that prevented us from destroying ourselves by just keeping that void open of not understanding and just not fully going into places. If we are to get some kind of hold of what is happening, then climate and the Earth is the center. And, and basically, the end goal, and uh, and all education, all business, everything is about rethinking that. So it's all about that, uh, about redesigning, rethinking almost everything. So it doesn't matter if you go into fashion design, everything has to be rethought. Uh, if you go into transportation, it has to be revolutionized. Almost every single field has a huge challenge in front of it uh, and the need for extreme talent and work and s- uh, to uh, kind of turn these fields, either turn them off or divert these habits into other directions. When I talk to young people, I tell them that uh, you know their life's work will all be about this. It can't be avoided. While we have stable, day-to-day lives. Every single day is about this. And we have to look back in 30 years and feel like our habits, our mentality, is basically unrecognizable to them. And they won't miss it. That is, when we quit slavery, when we stop all sorts of habits, stop smoking or something, it's it's not like we, we miss the time of the bad habit because we've just stepped into a new paradigm. So I tell them that it actually means it's a challenge, but actually humans thrive through challenges. We are here now because of challenges. And if they align their goals according to this, then they will maybe enter a workplace or activities that are kind of undefined now, but will emerge as a mainstream thing, and they will find that they will have created something thorough and tangible in a very short time, maybe 10 or 20 years, just like we see Google or something today. But also those that go into the old paradigm will find themselves obsolete and frustrated and lost and also meaningless, or, or at least highly compromised to the level of not feeling totally satisfactory for their day-to-day activities. When you look at history, you want to long to generations uh, that was in the Martin Luther King March you know you wish you were there or you wish you were at the Women's Liberation Day in Iceland in the nineteen in 1970 you know you wish that you had experienced moments in history and, and often it looks exciting in hindsight but it's actually often very difficult times very tense times very uncertain times and sorry guys you're, you're <laughs> these times are now but the positive thing is that the generation that is born after 2000, they don't have this creative lid on their head of not being able to think beyond 2000 because they've never, they've never been before 2000. So I think there will be a... And this generation feels climate anxiety, and that basically means they understand it. They are afraid, and they're afraid for a reason based on science and data. And that fear then will probably both lead to depression and all such things, but it will also lead to action, and lots of action, and also social behavior that uh, might happen faster than we expect because this generation will also seek power quicker than my generation because there was nobody of my generation that organized a protest filled the street with 200,000 peers. And if you look at this cliche of 10,000 hours of of experience leading to greatness, we have lots of 17, 18, 19, 20 year olds that already have their 10,000 hours of activism. And they're not going to forget that. So we have a generation that went through the corona crisis. They sacrificed their school years. So they have seen the emergency break. This generation has experienced that, not as an abstract thing, but as as suffering, as not meeting friends, not celebrating their best days, 18th birthday, 19th, 17th, not having their school, pra- school uh, gatherings or school parties. So they have experienced that. So they will see the economy in a different way. So they will ask, okay, is that killing me in 2017? It doesn't exist anymore. I'm sorry. We can't be without it. And when somebody complains and says, what do you mean you can't kill that? It'll be like, oh, for the first place, it's nothing compared to what we did during the corona crisis. And I sacrificed my school years, my best years of my life, for a higher cause. Now you guys sacrifice something for my older years. And and they'll just calculate, oh my God, I'm I'm going to be... You know, forty in the year two thousand fifty. You know, I'm going to be in my prime, and you're you're blowing it out. We feel like nothing is happening, but I, I I feel like when things start rolling downhill, then then things will happen much quicker than we anticipated. So the Northern Lights are a great phenomenon. This green curtain of this electric lights, kind of blazing over the skies, it's it's beautiful and it's like a like a ghost, like a uh, I don't, I don't, curtains, like a ghost, like uh, running horses. It's it's like a very vivid experience. And I remember as a child that the city lights were really uh, diminishing them, and uh, light pollution made them almost invisible. And then of course the daily stars, they, they could not be seen. And I remember we experienced a blackout and suddenly this huge sky was overhead and and the northern lights just exploding. And I just remember this deep, amazing experience of that. And I was thinking, well, this was the day-to-day experience of people since the dawn of humanity. And now, we're raising the first generation of children that can't reach the stars. We, we've never used space more, but actually people used to navigate through stars. And, you know, the stars were part of, and then they would be inspired, and then they would be part of culture, religion, you know, basically the sky was was a fundamental part of probably the human brain's development. And, Navigation, exploration, just, just everything was about the stars. And suddenly, we just tot- we are a new generation totally disconnected from that. So I convinced the city of Reykjavik to turn off all the lights. For one evening. We had an astronomer to talk about the stars uh, on national radio uh, for half an hour when the lights went off, people started whispering. So so it was like they also tuned down the noise of the city. So it's just like, a, like it went down like 10 decibels. I was, of course, freaking out when this happened, because I knew that everything that would happen in the whole city of Reykjavik during that half hour, every accident, any incident, any robbery or whatever, would be blamed on me. <laughs> <laughs> that was instigating the project. But then I was arguing for the real reason, which is, shouldn't it be the human right of a child to have access to the dark, deep sky? And, and what does it mean to develop a whole generation without access to this, without this deep emotional feeling?